1: Hello and welcome to First Act, a podcast from Koshy's Business Builders. I'm Sus Busby.
2: And I'm Adam Bubb.
1: Between us, we have nearly 40 years of experience interviewing some of the world's most inspiring and influential people, from pop stars to politicians, celebrities to CEOs, and ordinary people doing extraordinary things.
2: In this podcast, we put the spotlight on the first act of Australia's most innovative business founders and personalities. We find out how they came up with their best idea, what challenges they faced, and what advice they give to anyone walking in similar shoes. Now, that's a bit of a hint for today's guest, by the way. (laughs)
1: Today, we're joined by Jodie Fox, co-founder of Shoes of Prey and author of Reboot, probably more than you ever wanted to know about starting a global business. And if you've ever thought about starting a brand and taking it internationally, well, Jodie's tale will have you enthralled. It's a warts and all recount of the rise and demise of Shoes of Prey, which for close to a decade was one of the darlings of the Aussie startup scene. It's three years since Jodie had to make one of the most difficult decisions of her life and shut down Shoes of Prey. And she's, here, she's had some time and space to regroup from the aftermath. And we're so pleased that she can join us on the show today.
3: Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me.
2: It is so great to have you with us, Jodie. So, look, to kick off our conversation, we, we always start out with a first act, Icebreaker. Um, <laughs> your icebreaker for today is, if you had to listen to one song on repeat all day, what would it be and why?
3: Oh my God, you guys, that is a tough one. Um, Okay, I'm going to go with Shake It Off by Florence and the Machine Ah. because it is motivating, it's anthemic, I love the lyrics, I think she's fantastic. Um, Yeah, I think that... I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd be, I'd be pretty pumped most of the time, I guess. (laughs) It's a very, it's a great song.
2: (laughs) I actually thought you were about to say Shake It Off by Taylor Swift because Uh, my my song would be like a Taylor Swift song, but maybe not that one.
3: Oh, look, Taylor is pretty excellent. I'm not going to, there was a while there that I was, I thought maybe it wasn't cool to like Taylor, but you know, we've got to own this stuff. She's great. (laughs) Oh, Oh,
2: hell yeah. Completely agree with you. All right. Consider the ice broken. Now let's get let's get into your origin story, Doty. Let's talk about where it all started. You are from Lismore in New South Wales, originally. I sure am. Now, what did you want to be when you grew up?
3: Wow, uh, big question. I think that it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you know there were there were a few different things that inspired me, and it, they do show up in the choices that I made in life. So, one is you know I was extremely creative and was very much into performing arts. So I studied dance, I studied acting, um, and, you know, really loved those parts of my life, but equally, um, I really enjoyed studying commerce at high school, um, and sort of learning the nuts and bolts of how business fitted together. And, you know, I found that really exciting. Um, I come from, I'm, I'm half Italian and half Australian. And so I had um, another language and it really interested me, this idea of being able to, you know, have even that as a hook to thinking about international business. Um, so I don't know if I particularly had um, an exact job in mind, but I definitely had a connection to things that I knew that I thought were exciting.
1: So did entrepreneurship play much of a role in your life growing up then did you come from a family that was you know always coming up with new ideas were a bit of self starters
3: Not so much I mean I think that so I come from a background that um is uh, a poor background and it my family are what I sort of, I guess I see the connection in terms of some of my entrepreneurial journey is the resilience and the sort of slow building um, uh, that I got from seeing my parents build to create opportunities for my sister and I, like being able to go to university. So I think those elements were definitely there. My dad, I think in another life would have totally been an inventor. (laughs) He's always building little things uh, and sort of seeing things. He's an amazing lateral thinker. And my mom is very kind of all hands on deck, get things done. So um, I think there are def- definitely traits that pull through. Uh, but in terms of actual entrepreneurialism, I think that probably having come from that type of background was such an uncertain thing. And there'd already been so much uncertainty in in life to that point. So, you know, it was, sort of, it was a very sort of unknown and something that was probably carried with a little bit of skepticism even or concern.
2: That's such an interesting point you make because entrepreneurialism, like there's some people that think, oh, you've got to come from a family of entrepreneurs in order to have like the gene. But often it, it can also be a learnt thing that it comes out of situations that can be difficult and it that anybody can actually become an entrepreneur because it it's it's how the world around you, you know, kind of creates you.
3: Yeah, I mean it's it's really interesting. I mean, when you say when you say learnt, I think it I do think that most people have some, at least some characteristics of an entrepreneur, but there's, um, there's definitely exposure and confidence. So when you're exposed to seeing somebody who is on an entrepreneurial journey or, um, has entrepreneurial traits, it gives you more confidence that they're viable and that you can have a go to. Um, so I think there is definitely something to that that's probably connected to that idea of the gene or the, just the germ that you get where you're like, oh yeah, that's right for me. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, a lot of people certainly have the traits around them or carry them, but just execute them um, in the pathway that they've chosen. So, you know, I see having studied law, I see in particular, I have in mind one of my uh, friends from law school who I think is highly entrepreneurial, um, but on the sort of a path that's not traditionally thought of as entrepreneurial um, in being a partner at a firm. Um, And I mean, it actually is, but it's just not within that sense. So when I think about entrepreneurialism, I guess I think about it with a bit of a, a broad lens.
2: Well, yeah, you mentioned that you, you studied law. Um, you worked mm-hmm. as an insolvency litigation lawyer and then also as an advertising account manager after that. Mm-hmm. How did those experiences kind of, like, what, how formative were those for you and how'd they lead you to go, uh, I want something else?
3: Well, I guess it connects back to that thing that we were saying earlier, where I didn't have a specific job or career in mind when I was younger, but I knew things that I enjoyed. But law might seem like a bit of an odd choice within all of that. But what the reason I wanted to do it is because I achieved the marks to get into the course, but also I just felt like I didn't really understand how the world worked. And A law degree kind of almost was like reading the rule book before you played the board game. (laughs) Uh, You know, so it kind of gave me that really robust understanding and also the language and the tools to understand um, how to find the information as I sort of headed into my next chapter. So it, it was very formative in that sense. And the kinds of people and businesses I got exposed to through that, and even though I was very junior, so it wasn't direct exposure to those businesses, you know, the the kind of learning of those kind of tools was really amazing. Um, and then advertising, so yeah, it was a really funny one. I was I had worked in banking and finance law, and one of the disciplines I worked in was insolvency litigation. Um, securitization was another, and I, you know, sort of, I just wanted to. I missed that creative flexing muscles and learning in that way and thinking in that way. And so I started to make a list of all the things that made me happy in life. And then I started asking anyone who would speak to me about their career, what it was like. (laughs) And when I married those two things up, those conversations and that list, the thing that felt like it would be the next good move was advertising. And so I ended up emailing the agency that I thought was just extraordinary and managed to have an interview within that week and a job offer, which was phenomenal. I took a huge pay cut to do it, but going into that field was really amazing to understand how brands got built. And obviously that was also really a great tool to have in the kit uh, when it came to starting a business. And then in terms of starting a business, gosh, (laughs) Um, I I think it was a combination of a few things. So I had always loved the idea of starting a business, but it really also took my two co-founders, Mike and Michael, who were at Google and they were seeing a lot of online retail just starting to take off. And they were highly motivated and excited about the idea of starting a business and for me like it was the combination of the three of us and their excitement and confidence around it and what they knew about that world that they were exposed to and what I had in my world all put together that felt like you know I could uh, we could start a business.
1: How did your parents react to the whole business of you leaving law behind and jumping into this startup with Mike and Michael?
3: Well to their credit they were (laughs) <laughs> they asked lots of questions they weren't outwardly uh saying this is a bad idea <laughs> and I think that I really have to give my parents an extraordinary amount of credit for that a lot of the decisions that um I'd taken in the worlds that I was starting to connect to were very different to the ones they had um in their experience and they were always trying to understand rather than and always trying to kind of work with me on them rather than pushing me away from them. So I think that, uh, you know, it was, you're starting a website (laughs) and bearing in mind, this is 2008, 2009 and, you know, and wanting to know how we were going to manage things, stepping out of, you know, a very short career. So that was kind of more of the line of the way that we communicated about it. And for extraordinary people who didn't have the opportunity to go to university, you know, and get exposed to these worlds in this way, I think that's really impressive. So
2: the story of Shoes of Prey, I mean, you've you've told it many times before (laughs) and it's a fascinating story no matter how you tell it. Tell me about the the beach and the where that idea came from because I've heard about this story but let's hear it in your words the, the origin <laughs> where the idea came from.
3: I love that you know it was at the beach. <laughs> so it was a broad beach um and we were that classic Aussie summer thing where you know it's kind of christmas time and Michael and I were there um over Christmas and Mike had um come along as well and it was fantastic. And we're all sitting on the beach just talking about what this idea could be like, you know, is there a, a business that we could start? And the both boys had read this book by Seth Godin called The Purple Cow, which I'm sure loads of your listeners are familiar with. Um, but for those of you who aren't, I'm just going to summarize it because it'll put everything in context, which is if you were driving down a road and you saw in a paddock, you know, a brown cow, a white cow, black cow, you'd probably just keep driving. But if you saw a cow that was purple, you'd probably pull over, take a photo, and post it all over whatever your chosen social media um, is, or, you know, send it to your chat groups and oh my God, look at this. So something with very natural talkability was one of the core things that we wanted in the concept. As we were kind of chatting about that and they were sharing things that they were seeing at Google, in the background, <laughs> we, I had, as well as Michael's family, all of the women had been designing shoes together at um, together, but on trips that we had done to Hong Kong. And we absolutely, loved it. Uh, I remember the first time that I went, I went in and in one and a half hours designed 14 pairs of shoes. (laughs) It was just so cool to be able to get all of the things that were exactly what I wanted. And when I came back and the shoes were delivered and my girlfriends asked me about them, you know, they would say things like, oh, I've been looking for this type of shoe, but nobody makes it anymore. Or, oh, fantastic! You know, I've got a this size foot, and I can't find my size anywhere. And a lot of these insights would then become kind of customer segments we would focus on in the future, but we, we couldn't have known then. Anyway, so we started talking about these shoes, and designing your own shoes online became the idea that um, was cracked at the beach that day. And I have to say, it wasn't like a big bolt of lightning came down, or that we were like, "That's it! This is the one!" You know, it kind of was like that. Feels like it that feels the most interesting that feels like it fits these things that we're talking about let's do the next step step of research
1: so when did you realize that shoes of prey had legs because the the brand took off pretty quickly
3: and yeah I mean we broke even in the first year so like pretty quickly and so that was like a, a great indicator of market fit and you know then Shortly after that, we raised our first round of funding. So, you know, when you're seeing those kinds of indicators, you know, where there's kind of a natural adoption in the market, um, that's when you can – that's when you sort of know that it's worth taking the next step on or that it could be something bigger. But even then, I have to say at every step of Shoes of Prey, I never – never fully took for granted um, in any way um, that it was ever going to go to a next stage because there are so many elements that have to come together. And I think to stay focused and to make sure that you are being attentive to what that next stage of evolution is, is in your business, you don't take those things for granted.
1: You mentioned that in that first year, it grew so rapidly. So what were the challenges in, in scaling the brand at that speed?
3: Uh, So, I guess a couple of things. So, thinking contextually about that time, we'd just come out of the global financial crisis. Uh, One of the reasons that we were able to get factories to work with us was because they're usual orders were down. And one of the key things that we learned later on in a factory is making sure that your team has a consistent work level. And so when that's getting kind of staccato, um, that's when you start having retention issues and loads of other problems. So that consistency is important. And when, so because there were, there was capacity, they were open to this Totally crazy idea <laughs> of making one product at a time as opposed to having a minimum order quantity that was quite large and shipping them out. So we were able to pick that up. But then as we were growing, that kind of uh, demanding product within a factory, as these large orders started to revive themselves, became a problem. And so we needed, we had supply chain issues on a number of occasions um, to try and figure out.
2: So you raised over US. 27 million in funding. Uh, what was it like having such an enormous sum you know put into your business's pocket and getting that kind of like a massive leap of faith at that point?
3: it's pretty extraordinary and i have to say i still feel an enormous level of gratitude to the people who did back us i think venture capital plays and if i go with a macro lens venture capital plays and angel investors um, and institutions who are coming into backing startups play an absolutely critical role um, in the future as every single person knows it uh, because those 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 ideas those little ideas that take some time to grow um, that can change the world for the better in the way that we live, need that funding to kind of fly or, you know, sort of stop and evolve or whatever it's going to be in the future. You know, I mean, if you think about venture-backed companies that have just become everyday Things for us now, um, Slack, Uber, Canva—you know—all of these companies needed that leap of faith. So I think the role that venture capital and angels and those kinds of investments mean, I think, it's very important. Um, the sense of responsibility is pretty extraordinary. The nice thing about the group of investors that we had as well was that there was a lot of kind of intelligence in the room and experience. So. That was extremely useful, but it really is um, pretty nerve wracking to be doing something that's not been done before and planning out what you hope is going to be the effect and then putting it into play and just seeing, you know, uh, because what consumers will do and how it lands is never obviously entirely up to you. And, you know, you take all the data points in that you can, you use all of the things that you understand all the tools that are sitting in front of you uh, and then all of the marketing theory and go. So, yeah, it's, it's a really, it is very intimidating. It's very exciting. And I think that the journey can depend a lot on your relationship with your investors and the way you've raised cash as well. Yeah, so it's, it's a really, really interesting one.
2: <laughs> There'll be entrepreneurs listening who want to raise capital for their businesses. Um, mm-hmm. what, what advice would you give them
3: I think uh, there's so many pieces of advice that I'd give. So firstly, uh, the way that you pitch venture capital is – such a particular art, and we learnt it by embarrassing ourselves many times over. <laughs> but there is a lot of great information out there now in courses. And I mean, the first one that comes to mind is to get into StartMate with Blackbird, such a fantastic program to be a part of. So, you know, I think that there's so much out there for you to have, you know, a much higher baseline to start from than we did. Uh, so I'd really encourage looking at that. I'd also say, you know, if you're thinking about venture capital, to think about what your commitments are around that and the type of business that you want to build. When you're bringing that kind of money into your business, you are bringing forward a lot of costs because you haven't made your business generate that much capital to pay for it, itself, it yourself. So you have to have a level of comfort with that. You also have to know what that means in terms of being confident about your trajectory or what that journey will look like if you don't hit those numbers. And I, I would also say like there's lots of different ways to get capital injected into your business. Uh, and I think currently my sort of personal perception is that there's a lot of discussion around VC and it is very, very cool. Don't get me wrong. Um, but there are lots of options, uh, lots of other ways that you can raise funding if if you take a look at that and you think that maybe it's not quite right for you when i when I think about venture capital, I think you need to kind of know that you've got a great idea a big market waiting for you that you believe that you've got something for, um, maybe you've shown that that operates well, you've got a really solid team and you just need some cash to um, execute it. And if any one of those things are slightly out and maybe maybe it's that your market is smaller rather than larger, you know, venture capital may not be the right route for you and that's okay. There's loads of other ways that you can grow a big and sustainable business.
1: Now, you talked about having a level of comfort with the investors or um, venture capitalists. But when we're talking level of comfort, Shoes of Prey, you started that with your ex-husband, Michael. So what was that like having (laughs) someone that you're so close with as a business partner? What were the kind of benefits and challenges of that?
3: Ah, uh, lots of. So, um, and I will start out by saying that I still count Michael as a friend to this day and I'm really proud of the whole journey that we went on but as, you know, through our friendship and evolutions thereof. I think that it's it's pretty great to be, especially when you're throwing yourself into a journey like that. I can imagine that there would be a lot of challenges if you were with a partner who didn't understand those challenges and it's difficult to communicate exactly what they look or feel like unless you're going through it as well so that was definitely a benefit um another thing was that you know so few of us get to see our partners in action professionally and that was really cool as well some of the challenging sides of it were you know your home life kind of is very blurred uh, with your work life and we really sort of you know could fuel each other. Like if I heard him typing on his laptop at 9pm at night, I'd be like, oh my gosh. And even if I'd started to wind down, I was like, oh my gosh, I should be working. (laughs) (laughs) So there were lots of, lots of pros and cons for sure.
2: So, um, two years into the business, you and you and Michael divorced. So Mm -hmm. how did that affect your working relationship?
3: So we communicated an enormous amount and I think, you know, we were both still really young and, we made the decision together, (laughs) you know, and we didn't and the business was still very, very young. Um, there wasn't we didn't have children or, you know, extraordinary assets or anything like that. So, you know, there weren't a lot of the things that can be really tricky to deal with in a divorce. Uh and not to say that I mean divorce is always confronting and challenging, but we both cared hugely about the business and wanted to be a part of it. And we still cared about each other. We could just see that, you know, this was not you know, a a winning (laughs) answer to, you know, what we both were looking for in terms of our long-term partners. So it was a lot of conversations that we had. And I guess two things that were very important were the way we shared the information with the team. And I still don't know if there are better ways to do this, but for what we did was we had already separated for 2 months before telling the team and then we we thought about inviting like one person in at a time cuz it seemed like such a kind of intimate thing piece of news to share with people and then we're like no everyone's going to think they're getting fired <laughs> because they'll come in and then they'll go out looking like you know <laughs> kind of shocked and strange like a so we did it going, know, what the hell <laughs> i know and then so we did it like a team at a time which still really wasn't that much better um <laughs> the whole team's been fired <laughs> I, It was so yeah but um but
2: also think, knowing that they're going to there's there's, there's going to be gossip as well that everyone's going to be speculating and going oh i wonder like oh my god like it's such a shock. i wonder what happened you know there's all that kind of thing too that people, yeah. all your people that work for you are going to be talking about you
3: oh so well you know i didn't i didn't think about that part too much because i guess i was just like eh, it'll be what it will be i just wanted my main concern was that i didn't want people to feel like this was going to be a rocky place to work because of our divorce and because we told everyone and we'd already been separated living in separate places for two months I think there was kind of like this comfort because most people hadn't even picked it (laughs) um so that was that was cool and we were very kind of direct and open about um that we decided to part ways but we were both going to be staying in the business and how we were going to handle that um and then after that Of course, there were things, there were times that we would bother each other. And usually that would result in talking about it straight away with a Michael, can we just go to the boardroom for a moment, <laughs> and have a quick chat, or or him being like, Jody, we just need to have a quick board chat you know, in the boardroom, and it was I, I'm really, actually, exceedingly proud of that, because that meant that things never really festered, and amongst all of those tricky feelings and emotions that come with such a separation, at least in the workplace, we had some measures uh, that made it, you know, uh, workable, and you know, then we had to kind of figure out things like, okay. Neither of us are allowed to have dates come to the office, you know, you date this side of Surrey Hills, I'm dating that one, I don't want to run into you. (laughs) Um, But but actually, and I know that might sound silly, but really what we were doing there was looking for ways not to set off these crazy emotional landmines for each other that would then make the office a place that we couldn't focus.
2: Wow. I mean, having rules like that, like this part of Surrey Hills, like (laughs) it's genius. It's actually genius.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, if it's all right with you, I'm going to get into a little bit of the hard stuff. What kind of happened when everything at Shoes of Prey went pear-shaped? I mean, you probably had one of the most successful startups. You employed hundreds of people. You had your own factory in China. Your product was available all around the world. You're in an exclusive department store. Everything's coming up roses and then suddenly everything goes wrong. Like, the whole business collapses and you were in China at the time. So can you walk us through those final moments and what kind of guided your decisions and what it was like to have to break the news to your team as well? Because I imagine that that just would have been horrible.
3: Uh, I mean, it was, I still, um, it was heartbreaking. I think like any business, there are always some struggles going on in the background. And so, and also too, as I mentioned earlier, I know I and my team never took for granted the wins that we had in the business. And also too, when you think about a business that's growing in that way, one of the challenges is being present for the wins because you are thinking months and years down the track about what you need to execute, set up and execute next things like going into Nordstrom or David Jones definitely don't happen at the drop of a hat. And, you know, Michael spearheaded those campaigns beautifully, um, you know, which was really, truly extraordinary. When things were kind of heading in a southward direction, (laughs) it was unbelievably challenging. And there were so many decisions to make about how we were going to work on those with the team. From day one, we had always committed to and believed in transparency and so that that definitely stayed in our DNA and we i think if you're hiring really smart people as well they know when things are getting tricky they know the the signpost where well, they know where those markers are and we felt that in terms of honoring that, but also in terms of if we wanted to ask people to do more work with us to go forward, they deserve the honesty of understanding what those markers were, what they meant and what their role was around those. So yeah, we were pretty straight up <laughs> with our team about those. We had made rounds of redundancies prior to those final days and God, they were just the worst. <laughs> you know, Particularly in the US team uh, where I was based, I found it really challenging because when we did move the headquarters to the United States, I think it was uh, 23 of 25 team members moved with us. That's a huge commitment for someone to pull up their plot stamps and go to a whole other country. And that also meant that when we didn't know people or have family around in the US, you know, we were there celebrating each other's birthdays together and kind of being that that family. So, um there were lots of elements that made it particularly difficult and also thinking about visas and what that meant for people who ha- had established their life there. When we talk about those final days, uh so yes, I was in China, that's where we had the largest part of our team left. And <laughs> I just felt sick every day. I was getting a couple of hours sleep every night. I was um staying in friend's apartment doing these extremely serious goals all through the night and um yeah I would get up in the morning and go into the factory and uh be at my desk you know just looking for any way and there, there simply wasn't we'd gone through multiple processes to try and find a home for shoes of prey and it just it, it was clear by that stage that we had exhausted all of those options so yeah on that on that very final day I remember There were 140 people left in the team there and we had a team of accountants, lawyers and security uh, come in because there's processing that you need to do. The lead up to it had been really full on as well for me personally. Um, I'd heard (laughs) and being told by a few people independently that there'd been factories around us that had closed uh, without paying out redundancies and, you know, all of the correct amounts to people. And so people would just turn up to work one day and the factory doors would be shut. And that one of the kind of courses of action that was now occurring was to kidnap the owner of the factory until those amounts were assured for the team um, and then <laughs> release oh them. Gosh. And I, I didn't feel that my team would do that when we had an extraordinary culture. And one of the data points to that was that the – attrition rate in factories usually sits around, uh, in the time that I was there would sit around 25% annually. So Chinese new year would come traditionally, people would go home and spend time with their families and then decide if they were coming back. And so the attrition rate around that time was about 25%, but ours was extremely low, like 1%. (laughs) It was very little. So, you know, we had built a really great culture and good team that had, um, excellent tenure, but, um, you know, hearing this information was pretty full on. And so there was kind of kidnapping insurance just to be sure (laughs) that if that came, (laughs) you know, we knew what the answer was rather than having to (laughs) hustle to figure out what to do. And we had set everything up so that we could do everything correctly. So that's why all of those people were there. And yeah, I just remember standing in front of my team and how the general manager was translating for me because my Chinese is absolutely nowhere near good to explain. And, you know, i thought long and hard about what to say and even as the word came words came out of my mouth it was one of those times where everything just felt foreign and wild that it was even having to experience this moment and we just stood in silence these were people who'd really kind of we grew up together in lots of ways over the 10 years you know with having families and meeting the loves of our lives and you know journeying through tough moments and like Chun was one of our very, very, very first employees. And whenever I went to China, she'd always touch my waist and my wrists and tell me if I got fatter or skinnier. (laughs) from when I saw her last (laughs) year. Just all these, you know, and James, whose wife had come to work with us as well and his beautiful family. And I just, you know, this was more than um, people who made shoes for Shoes of Prey. So, um, yeah, we kind of, and then, you know, we kind of stopped and it was just this incredible silence and tears and hugs and, Eventually I went back to my desk and I had messaged the customer service team that morning to start refunding people whose shoes were on the production line but wouldn't get made. Um, I had asked our last engineer, Mel, to put to stop the site, put up a sign to say we were closed. Um, you know, and all of those elements had come into play. And then our head of stitching, our GM and head of operations, came over to my desk and they were like, "Jody, we've got these shoes that aren't made yet. It's like, guys, I know, but you know, we, we have to close today. There's no more money for more salary. There's no more money for, you know, we're, we're done and it's okay. We're refunding those people. And they were like, no. I was like, yes. (laughs) Uh, And they said to me, no, we've spoken. And as a factory, they had decided to finish making the orders. And it was just one of those, I still feel very emotional thinking about it where there's no way that I could have or ever would have asked that of anyone. And it's testament to our whole team there and the work that our GM Howard and that our CEO Chris and everyone had done to build that sense of connection to what we were doing as a company and to the people who would receive those shoes and wear them. Uh, So that was a Tuesday morning and The team stayed in all of their parts until Friday uh, to finish making those shoes. And it was, yeah, it still stays with me as one of those moments that ought to be with me for the rest of my my life. I
1: can hear just from your voice how heartbreaking it must have been for you to see what happened to your company and to have to close it like that because... Not only because of all the people that you're impacting, but also I think because Shoes of Prey was just so much of your identity was wrapped up in the business. So it must have not only been about losing the business, but also kind of losing a part of yourself. So how did you grieve that?
3: <laughs> yeah, that is a very good question. So, in a couple of ways, one was, uh, you know, in those. Uh, one thing that people don't talk about is that when a company stops, there's lots of stuff that you need to do afterwards that takes a very long time to do. Um, so there was that. There was also the identity part was extremely challenging insofar as, you know, until that moment when I turned up in a room to introduce myself, I was you know, hi, I'm Jodie Fox from Shoes of Prey. You can design your own shoes with us. And, you know, it was a pretty great conversation starter (laughs) Um, to talk about designing your own shoes. So, you know, there was definitely this part of like, what do I say when I introduce myself to people now? And the natural question that comes is, you know, so what are you doing next? And honestly, that was just when I would say, I'm not sure, you know, that just felt like such a cop-out, but it was the absolute truth. And in between all of that, kind of all the, tidying up and process that happens for closing a company, there were these sort of broad moments of silence, which I hadn't experienced for years because, you know, in the 10 years preceding that, every moment was shoes of prey. And, um, you know, and really I had to make an effort to, you know, sort of open up moments that were not. So these broad moments of silence, I just absolutely jam packed with anything that captured my attention from cleaning my house top to toe to watching the Sopranos from start to finish, (laughs) whatever, whatever it was that I could just, you know, absorb. Um, and then of course writing the book. Yeah. So it's definitely, I think that sort of loss of identity is a really big one. And the recreation, although I've done a few things since then, i do think about starting my next business. And it's, a, it's with such informed and experiential knowledge now, you know, that there's a, a lot of things that will be interesting to process in that next stage.
2: One of the things that you've been, I mean, you've, you've brought you know, such insight and um, vulnerability you know, to this conversation about talking about mental health as a business owner and I think that's such a major issue and I think over the past couple of years and during the pandemic that has come really sharply into focus. You know how do, how do you pick yourself back up when you've been through something, the resilience of it all? What do you want other business owners to know about dealing with their own mental health?
3: Oh, gosh, so much. I mean, I think I can only speak from my own experience, of course, and there's lots of different ways that people experience this. So the things that I found helpful were feeling, understanding that I wasn't alone and that plenty of people had been through this. And in fact, the majority of people had, <laughs> um, when you look at the statistics around venture back companies. But the people who stepped forward to talk about that with me were really the biggest sources of comfort. And I think, I, as I mentioned, one of the challenging questions that I often heard was, hey, what's next? And just understanding that's a confronting question, you know, is is a good thing for people to know, but also, yeah, just sharing. And it's it's a really big challenge, I think, for entrepreneurs and especially ones that are venture-backed or, you know, very publicly facing because to speak with vulnerability about the challenges you have can naturally be perceived as weaknesses within the business or within the leader. But if we can turn that corner <laughs> and see it as the thing that we talk about a lot, which is that we learn the most from our failures, then that's when we're going to get to a very rich space of... Um, actually providing maps for each other of where potholes are um, and where the gravel roads are and where the bitumen roads are <laughs> to you know, help rise as a group of entrepreneurs to a place that's really exciting in a much faster way. And I do see that happening within our ecosystem, having stepped out for a number of years to be in the US and then kind of starting to re-engage in that community now. It's pretty extraordinary.
1: So you put pen to paper following the demise of Shoes of Prey and and started to write Reboot, probably more than you ever wanted to know about starting a global business. Very long title. There, so.
3: <laughs> I know, I know. But it's the truth. I mean, <laughs> the, the whole point of the title was that the book isn't, it, it's, I, there's lots of books about the detailed journey of a business, but this was about the personal journey of it. You know, when you're having those deep and meaningful conversations, you're like, look, this might be more than you want to know. Well, that's this book.
1: <laughs> yeah. So was it cathartic getting everything out on paper? and? What do you hope when people are reading it? What do you hope that they learn from your journey?
3: I just hope that people can find something in it that tells them that they're on track or that they're good or that someone else has trod that road too and it's okay. That's probably my biggest hope. And anything in there that um, sheds a light on something that's tricky, that is helpful, you know, that just will make my day if that is helpful to somebody else.
2: Now, you even you can't, you even say on LinkedIn, you're an author and entrepreneur who may or may not make it. So <laughs> I find that so refreshing because <laughs> hustle culture is so full on nowadays. Do we need more of this kind of vulnerability in entrepreneurship? You know, people admitting when, when something hasn't worked out and going, well, this is what I learned from that. And, you know, this is how I, you know, that kind of thing.
3: Yeah, I think it's where some of the good stuff is that we're really missing out on. I think just having... Having the capacity to like really face the truth and talk about what the challenges are is probably going to help you to pick up conversations to learn more stuff that'll improve not only the thing that you're having trouble with, but lots of other things. We're each only one single individual. That's why we build teams so that we can tap into lots of areas of knowledge and lots of different brains to build something great underneath a, a vision that we're all striving for. So I think if we applied that same theory of teamwork and collaboration to sharing Failures, oh, bad word, right? <laughs> um, then, yeah. actually, I think that there's something really powerful in it. To find the execution for that, I think, is really tough because, like I said before, you know, it's it. There are very particular challenges to you know what it means to share a failure, um, and especially you know, the biggest, the bigger your business gets, the more sort of points within that become complex, whether it's in terms of what you feel that might mean legally or what you feel that might mean or feel and legal are two very two different things but you know like um maybe you're sharing something you know it's, it needs to have you know very strong chat house rules around it maybe you but to find avenues that can contribute positively to that I think is a superpower power we haven't fully tapped just yet
2: well, I think you're probably tapping into it already, so you're already <laughs> ahead of the curve. But you have also expanded your team in another <laughs> sense um, over the past two years. You've started a family, uh, so yes. What, if anything, has changed for you um, since becoming a parent?
3: Gosh, it's very, um, it's very interesting. Believe it or not, a lot of the system and process optimization has been very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> It's starting with Emily. So um I think that um, you know, that, that period of shoes of prey has really helped me to uh <laughs> navigate <laughs> this early motherhood well. But one of the really interesting things for me has been navigating the choice to really lean into that and think about something, a concept that I had in mind years ago, but only fully came to terms with now, which is you can have everything, just not all at once. And I think the for me, post choose a prey and post book was kind of this urgency to define and execute the next stage of my career. But I find myself in this position of having children and finding in becoming a mother. And I don't think I could have found it beforehand that actually I do want to lean into this for a moment. And, um, it's been really special and those kind of question marks about the next big thing constantly come into my mind. But it also was a good opportunity to learn something new about myself, which is I'm really good at one big focus at a time. So, you know, sort of at the moment, that's what that's been. And it's been beautiful and challenging in all of the ways. <laughs> and my hat really goes off to, you know, all the parents before me uh, doing all of this because it's um, it's really enormously challenging and such a mental load uh, that uh, for all of the literature and communication around it is a lot to understand until stepping into those shoes.
1: I'd love to see your roster system. I could do with it for my two kids. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Look, I don't know if it's that good, but I'm happy to share. <laughs> uh, um, thank you
1: so much, Jodie. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you today. You've really been vulnerable and thoughtful in sharing your journey and to everybody else that's listening join us next week when we unpack another fascinating first act conversation